Welcome to this week's podcast of Bergen Park Church from Evergreen, Colorado. We hope you enjoy this message, and if you'd like to hear any more or learn more about the church, please visit bergenparkchurch.org. Welcome to Bergen Park Church. My name is Jonah. I'm one of the elders here at BPC. I serve on our staff. Now, the vision, mission, goals, and strategy of Bergen Park Church are built on five core values. You'll see these symbols up on your screen here. Um, Five core values, five foundation stones, really, that explain who we are and that guide what we do. So we're in this five-week series unpacking for you these five core values. So a couple weeks back, we looked at invitation, come as you are. God himself invites people into relationship with himself. And then last week, we looked at transformation, the idea of a life-changing relationship with God. Come as you are, but don't stay as you are. When we enter into relationship with God, he changes us. He changes our our lives. So today, we're going to take a look at revelation anchored in the Bible. So when I say revelation, I don't mean the last book in the New Testament. I mean revelation in a very general sense, that which has been revealed to human beings by God through the power of the Holy Spirit in the Word of God. All Scripture is God-breathed. 2 Timothy 3.16. God-breathed. Theopanustos. This is a word in Greek that Paul himself coined. The word doesn't show up anywhere in Greek literature until that time. Breathed out by God, the very word of God. So the leadership of Bergen Park Church claims to be anchored in the Bible. We strive to be anchored in the Bible. In fact, we want this church to be characterized as a word-centered church. We are people of the Word. So this means that in theory and hopefully in practice, our beliefs about God are not anchored in personal opinions. You don't need me or Jason or the elders or anyone else to get up here and share our opinions with you, what we picture God to be like or what we think God should be like. Okay, we need to present a clear, cogent, biblical truth. And that goes for everyone in this church, our growth group leaders, our Sunday school teachers, our youth leaders, anchored in the Bible. Moreover, we are not anchored in cultural trends. In theory and hopefully in practice, we're not interested in the latest theological fashions, what's going on in the culture of the church. We're interested in timeless truth. In addition, we're not anchored in political philosophy. In theory, and hopefully in practice, we're not interested in taking our directional cues from dubious political theories and notions from the right, from the left, from the center, from really anywhere else that is not rooted in God's Word. So our commitment at Bergen Park Church is to put aside the insipid noise of the world, okay? To put aside mere opinion, to turn to what God says about himself. The Bible is more than just another source of information for us. The Bible actually requires something of us. It demands that we recognize 
God. It demands a life-transforming response to those who read the Word of God. When we're confronted with God's law, confronted with God's grace, when we read of His plan for humanity, this should change us. So my question for you today is this. What response does the Bible elicit in you? Does the Bible guide and inform every part of your life as it directs you into a life of discipleship? Or is it just another book? Is the Bible a source of joy, a source of salvation for you? Or is it a mere historical curiosity and, and nothing more? Are you drawn to the central message of Scripture? Or are you repulsed by what God says about himself and human beings? Does God's word anchor you every day? Does it anchor you? So as we ponder these questions, I want to invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to 2 Kings chapter 22. And this is a story about how the word of God transformed a king and his entire people. So 2 Kings chapter 22, and we're going to read verses 1 through 11 this morning. Josiah was eight years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 31 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Jedidah, the daughter of Adiah of Bozkath. And he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord and walked in all the way of David his father. And he did not turn aside to the right or to the left. In the 18th year of King Josiah, the king sent Shaphan, the son of Azaliah, son of Meshulam, the secretary to the house of the Lord, saying, Go up to Hilkiah, the high priest, that he may count the money that has been brought into the house of the Lord, which the keepers of the threshold have collected from the people, and let it be given into the hand of the workmen who have the oversight of the house of the Lord, and let them give it to the workmen who are at the house of the Lord repairing the house, that is, to the carpenters and to the builders and to the masons, and let them use it for buying timber and quarried stone to repair the house. But no accounting shall be asked from them for the money that is delivered into their hand, for they deal honestly. And Hilkiah the high priest said to Shaphan the secretary, I have found the book of the law in the house of the Lord. And Hilkiah gave the book to Shaphan, and he read it. And Shaphan, the secretary, came to the king and reported to the king, Your servants have emptied out the money that was found in the house and have delivered it into the hand of the workmen who have the oversight of the house of the Lord. Then Shaphan, the secretary, told the king, Hilkiah, the priest, has given me a book. And Shaphan read it before the king. And when the king heard the words of the book of the law, he tore his clothes. This is the word of the Lord. Heavenly Father, we thank you. We praise you for this opportunity to read your word this morning, to meditate on your word. Lord, your word is a treasure. It points us to our God, to our Savior. So Lord, as we study your word this morning, would this be an act of worship, Lord? Would you guide us into the truth? Would you guide us to the cross? Would you show us Jesus this morning? Amen. 
So a little background on this passage, Second uh, Kings. In fact, First Kings, Second Kings, both of these books deal with the history of the nation of Israel, the two kingdoms, divided kingdoms, the south, Judah, the north, the ten tribes of Israel. And so here we're dealing with uh, the king of Judah, Josiah, in the southern kingdom. Okay, and so Josiah has discovered this book of the law. Now understand, again, the context here. Ancient Israel is historically unique as a nation state, and then God had made a covenant with this particular nation so that if they obeyed him, he would bless them, and if they disobeyed, they would be under the curse. And this is laid out quite clearly in Deuteronomy chapter 28. If you obey me, benediction. If you disobey, malediction. No other nation at that time or since has enjoyed that kind of status with God. So with this context in mind, we turn to King Josiah and his encounter with the word of God, the book of the law. And what we're going to see here is a, a dramatic response. In fact, King Josiah's response to the word should incite us to ask ourselves how we as a church ought to respond to God's word today. And so I have three remarks, three points we're going to look at in the text. And I want to remind you there are notes on the back of the bulletin and questions for your use as well. And I would encourage you to go back to those questions that I put in the bulletin and think about those in your personal uh, devotions. And for growth group leaders as well, I'm encouraging our leaders to take your group through these questions as we think about our core values. First point, the Word of God is a valuable treasure. So again, the narrative of 2 Kings 22 builds in a rather interesting way. Notice that it isn't the discovery of the book of the law that serves as the climax of this passage in verse 8. Now, that, that's an important piece, that the, 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 the book of the law is uncovered in verse 8. But what's more important is verse 11, the content of the book of the law, and what it actually does in the life of Josiah. So as we work our way through this narrative, we see that the discovery of the object is important, but more important is the reading of the contents. Now, I've, I brought my Bible here. This is my favorite Bible, the Reformation Study Bible. This thing weighs about 40 pounds. It's got notes, all kinds of footnotes in it, cross-references. It's got documents in the back, the, the, the confessions of faith, the, uh, all, all of these important articles from, from the history of the church. A beautiful Bible, leather-bound. It's, it's a wonderful object. But it, the object itself may have value, but what we really want to understand is the, the content, the Word of God, not just the object and the person to whom it points us, God himself, right? So King Josiah has commissioned repairs to the temple of the Lord. And to carry out the repairs, he sends his administrator, his secretary, Shaphan, to go oversee uh, these repairs. And he's to go speak with Hilkiah, the high priest, and they're to distribute the money, the resources that they need to fix this temple that has fallen into disrepair during the reign of Josiah's wicked father and his wicked grandfather, Manasseh and Ammon. You can go back and read about those two characters in chapter 21 at some point. Very, very wicked people who had sinned against God, who had allowed worship of Yahweh 
to fall to the side, and they'd replaced it with worship of the Canaanite deities. So the, the temple's fallen into disrepair, and you can imagine these workers go into the temple, and they start to straighten things up, and they, they move away the, the, the cobwebs, and they, they start to dust things off, and they, they, they take inventory of, of the objects that are there. And you can imagine these workmen going through the temple, and there in the back of the temple, next to the Ark of the Covenant, is a box covered in a thick layer of dust. So they call Hilkiah, the high priest, over, and Hilkiah picks up this box and wipes the dust away and begins to pull back the lid. And what he sees there is a book, or more precisely, a scroll. And as he begins to pull back the parchment, the paper, he reads these words. These are the words that Moses spoke to Israel. He had discovered the book of the law, which is another name for the book of Deuteronomy. Okay, he discovered the book of Deuteronomy. Now, some scholars suggest maybe he found the, the entire Pentateuch, the, the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, but most likely what this refers to is the book of Deuteronomy. It's God's Word. Now, I imagine during these repairs, the, 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 the workers found all kinds of treasures of gold and of silver, of stone, of wood, all kinds of interesting things there in the temple. But here we see a true treasure. And what's interesting about this is the treasure was hiding in plain sight. In fact, in Deuteronomy 31, verse 26, Moses was actually instructed by God to place this book next to the Ark of the Covenant in the tabernacle or later the temple. It was exactly where it was supposed to be. It shouldn't have been a surprise to anyone but you see how the temple, how worship had fallen in, into neglect. This treasure was hiding in plain sight. Now, maybe you've had experiences like that as well when you're going through your attic, you're going through your, your basement, your garage, looking through old boxes, and you come across some really special thing from your past, something you'd forgotten about. I had an experience like this recently. I had a, a plastic bin of stuff from my childhood that had been stored down at my parents' house in Denver, and they decided, we don't want this stuff in our garage anymore. Here you go. And so I took it home and started sorting through, sifting through all of these memories from my childhood, throwing some things away, saving some other things, kind of just taking stock of what was in this box. And as I began uncovering the objects there, I found a true treasure. Now, I am a huge football fan and a huge Minnesota Vikings fan. And there in this box was a pennant that I had from my childhood. Minnesota Vikings, 1993. I had gotten a chance to meet the team after a game and get a couple dozen autographs on this pennant. It was a true treasure I'd completely forgotten about. Now, the object itself is just a piece of felt. It doesn't really matter, but it was those memories, you see. The autographs, the content, the meaning, all of that. That was what was significant. You see, it's, it's similar with the Word of God, the content. This is why the psalmist in Psalm 119.11 says, I treasure the Word of God in my heart. God's Word points us to God Himself. The Word of God is a treasure. But secondly, the Word of God convicts our hearts. It convicts our hearts. See, when Josiah saw the book of the law... 
It was, it was then read to him. We can imagine, you know, take a look at verse 10. He's, he's sitting there. Uh, Shaphan comes in with his book, and the king is likely sitting there on his throne, and Shaphan is reading the, the words aloud to him. And as the king hears these words, he's pondering the meaning, listening to the stories of, of God's creation, of how God called Abraham and set him apart to make him a great nation, to bless the nations through him. He's hearing the stories of God's covenant with his people, how God delivered his people out of bondage in Egypt. He heard about how God gave his people his law and vowed to protect them and bless them if only they would keep his law and love him with all of their heart, soul, mind, and strength. And as Josiah heard the reading of the word, his heart was convicted. He was compelled to act. He couldn't remain neutral in the face of what he had heard. Now, we need to meditate on verse 11 for a few minutes. We need to think about verse 11. This is a very important verse. And in fact, I would suggest the American church in general needs to spend some time truly meditating on verse 11. This is an important verse. Let me read this verse for you. When the king heard the words of the book of the law, he subjected the text to careful analysis following the methods of enlightenment philosophy and 19th century German higher criticism to determine which parts had been changed and added over years of human modification. Sorry, I, I, I misread this. Um, we're going to try it again. Let's get that verse up on the screen again here. When the king heard the words of the book of the law, he reinterpreted them through the lens of late modern hermeneutical communities because he recognized that there's no objective truth embedded in the text and that all meaning must be supplied through communal engagement with diverse interpretive traditions within constantly evolving hermeneutical circles. Sorry, guys, we're going to get it here. Let's, let's try it one more time. When the king heard the words of the book of the law, he accepted the parts he deemed were influenced in some way by God and rejected the parts he decided were based on pure human reflection. This allowed him to put greater emphasis on the parts that talked about God's love while removing all references to antiquated teaching on morality and sexuality and other old-fashioned notions that didn't relate well to his 21st century sensibilities. Clearly, I'm really struggling here this morning. We're going to try this one more time. When the king heard the words of the book of the law, he dismissed them as silly superstitions because the Old Testament is a waste of time, as everybody knows, and he just couldn't understand what the big deal was with all that nonsense, and he was waiting for someone to come along and write the New Testament, which would clean up God's image and make more sense. Go ahead and take that garbage off the screen. I've heard way too, here's the thing, here's the thing. I've heard way too much of this kind of thing from teachers, scholars, pastors, elders, authors, and members of congregations. Now, I'm not saying that we don't analyze the text as we study it. I'm not saying that we don't give it a very careful reading. Okay, you guys, you know me well. Okay, we do interpret 
we do come to the text carefully and analyze the text. Absolutely. Yes, 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 and yes. In fact, I probably spent 20 hours this week reading and rereading the passage, outlining the passage, analyzing words, looking up terms in Hebrew, reading and consulting commentaries, praying that God in his mercy would keep me from saying anything false about him so that I would not fall under his judgment. Yes, we take time to read and study the text. But what these fake verses I I had put up on the screen, what these fake verses we looked at miss is that God is the author of the text and that his Holy Spirit not only guided the human scribes, but also illuminates the human reader so that even a child can read and understand the central truth claims of Scripture. Let's look one last time at verse 11, the real verse 11 this time. When the king heard the words of the book of the law, he tore his robes. He tore his robes. He displayed, in other words, distress, anguish over the recognition of his sin against the most high God of the universe. He tore his robes as a sign of remorse and overwhelming grief for having sinned against the thrice holy God. See, Josiah's response here was extreme because the sin of his people was extreme. He couldn't ignore it. He didn't wait until later to respond. He acted. This is what we see the people do when Peter preaches the gospel in Acts chapter 2. After the day of of, of Pentecost, uh, when the Holy Spirit came on the apostles, and Peter stands up in front of the assembly And this is Peter. This is Peter who had denied Jesus. This is Peter who is hiding, afraid. This is Peter who didn't understand the gospel. The Holy Spirit comes on him and he preaches and proclaims the wonders of God. He proclaims the gospel of Jesus Christ. And what is the response of the people in Acts chapter 2? What must I do to be saved? We see this throughout the book of Acts. What must I do to be saved? See, when the ship is sinking, you don't just lay there on the deck of the ship, sipping your pina colada and enjoying the sunshine. You bail out the water. You get to the life raft. What must I do to be saved? Right? When the house is burning down around you, what do you do? Sit there? No, you grab a fire extinguisher or you flee for your life. What must I do to be saved? When the train is bearing down on you, you don't just stand in the middle of the track. Again, what must I do to be saved? See, in the preceding chapter, we read that Josiah's grandfather, Manasseh, was the worst king in the history of Judah. He was a violent man. He had filled the streets of Jerusalem with blood. He murdered his own people. He abandoned God and worshipped the detestable gods of the Canaanites. He even sacrificed his firstborn son on the altar of Molech. He had transformed the temple of God into a temple of doom, okay? So by the time Josiah had become king, Judah was already fallen into wickedness. This extreme sin provoked an extreme reaction on the part of Josiah. The word of God had convicted his heart. And he didn't just sit there. He acted. What must I do to be saved? The word of God elicits a change in us. That's the third thing we want to look at. 
What must I do to enter fellowship with God? To repair what is broken? Josiah didn't try to justify his idolatry, to make excuses for his sin or the sin of the people. Yet this is what we do so often. It's what I do. It's what we do. We aren't comfortable with what the Bible says about our idolatry, about our broken relationship with God. We may not want to hear it, and so we adapt it to meet our desires. How often have we done this? We end up becoming essentially practical atheists who acknowledge God with our heads and we deny him with our hearts and we deny him with our hands and we deny him with our feet and we do not engage in, the, in, in discipleship and in the mission of God. Here's what we need to understand. See, for the people of Israel, a healthy people was a God-centered people and a God-centered people was a word-centered people. What does that mean today? Well, as the people of God, the church, if we want a healthy church, we need a God-centered church. And if we want a God-centered church, we need to be a word-centered church. A healthy church is a church whose theology, that is our beliefs about God and our mission, is rooted in God's word. What God says about himself in the Bible should always supersede what we say about God. We go to his word. A healthy church fills itself with God's word, meditating on God's word. And this requires being filled with the things of God. It produces being filled with the things of God. This means finding a Bible reading plan and, and sticking to it. And in fact, we can put up a couple slides. We've got some recommendations for you guys. Just find an app like the Holy Bible app and start using that to read the word of God every day. It's not hard to find these, these apps that will keep you in the Word and, and keep you accountable. Pick up your Bible and read it. And if reading the entire Bible, if that's a, too big of a, a, a piece to, to chew or to break off, start with the Gospel of John. Pick up the Gospel of John and start reading and discovering who Jesus is. A chapter a day. Even just a, a section a day. Who is Jesus? Who is God? Parents, pick up the Bible and start reading it to your kids. You don't have to have a seminary education. Just pick up the Bible and, and read a few verses. Ask a few questions. What does this tell us about God? How does this point us to Jesus? Read the Bible. We don't just do this to do it because it's a, a thing Christians are supposed to do. I believe the Word of God changes people's lives. It has changed my life. I had the, the privilege a couple years ago sitting with a young man who he'd, he'd come to church a couple of times with his girlfriend. He wasn't a believer. In fact, he was an atheist. And he wanted to learn a, a thing or two about Christianity since his girlfriend had been attending the church. So I offered to read the Bible with him. He selected the Gospel of John to read. His name was John. He thought, okay, I'll start with, with John. That, that works. It fits. For a year, every week, we sat together and read another piece. And during that year, I watched the skepticism slowly melt. The doubts slowly get peeled away. By the end of that year, he'd given his life to Christ. We just read the Bible. The Word of God is living and active. It will not 
return void. I had the pleasure, the privilege of baptizing this young man after that time in the Word. It's a powerful thing, an amazing thing. The Word of God changes people's lives. A healthy church seeks to build their belief and their practice around a careful, thoughtful, prayerful interpretation of the Bible. As I mentioned before, when we impose modern philosophical and literary theory on the Bible, its message is diminished. When we impose modern scientific paradigms on the Bible, its message is diminished. When we read the Bible through the lens of our 21st century political theory, its message is diminished. We've got to be careful. Check your philosophical baggage before you come to Scripture. Theologies that attempt to overly humanize the Bible or that attempt to undermine its divine origin or, or, or the author's original intent end up diminishing God's sovereignty, the gravity of the human condition, the doctrine of justification by faith. I've read a lot of theology over the years. I read voluminously in various works. I've read a lot of theological books, and I can promise you one thing. The thing that the bad ones all have in common is an author with a low view of Scripture every time. So again, my question is this. We need to rediscover the Word. Have you, have you done that? Where are you at? What reaction is evoked in us when we read of God's grace the reconciliation of God and man by the righteousness of, of Christ. The Bible is the most important book we're ever going to read. Not because it's a manual for living a better life. No, it's the most important book you're ever going to read because it tells us who God is. It points us to Jesus Christ. It shows us how to enter a relationship with Jesus Christ. So are we ready to throw ourselves down in repentance and worship is that where you're at? Are we ready to metaphorically and maybe literally tear your robes, if that's what it takes, in agony over our sin condition? Are we ready to surrender ourselves to God through faith in Jesus Christ, our Savior? See, God wants us to rediscover the wonders of his word every single day, to wake up every single day and to say to ourselves, wow, I found a book, and to read it. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, we again thank you for the opportunity to gather in your presence, to read your word, to be drawn to Jesus Christ. Lord, we repent of our neglect, neglect of you, that we have not walked in obedience, that we followed the ways of the world. Lord, did you bring us back into right relationship with you through the word? through worship. Would your Holy Spirit speak to our hearts today, convict us of our sins. Would you take us again and again back to the cross, back to Jesus, back to repentance, Lord. Lord, we need you. In Jesus' name, amen. Now we're gonna take some time to celebrate communion this morning as we do every week. Um, the idea behind communion too is to remember God, to remember our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. You know how easily we forget. Oftentimes, I'll walk out of church, even after having preached a sermon, and forget what I preached, and revert right back into the same tendencies, the same patterns, 
We need to remember Jesus Christ every day. That's why we celebrate communion here weekly. I'll tell you, I would celebrate it daily if, if I could. I need it. We need to remember who Jesus is in our lives, what he's done for us. So hopefully you've had some time to grab the communion elements. We have a table in the back or here in the, the front as well. You know, as I say often, communion is our opportunity to say yes to Jesus, to publicly profess faith in him. I said this last week, I'll say it again, because again, we forget, I forget. Communion is between you and God, but it's also between you and, and those sitting around you. So let's, let's take the communion elements together. As Jesus did, we, we begin with the bread. On the night Jesus was betrayed, we read that he took the bread, and after he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body. Do this in remembrance of me. After supper, Jesus also took the cup, the wine, and he reminded his disciples, this is the blood of the covenant. Do this in remembrance of me.